Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. In Revelation chapter 4, this will be a second lesson on this episode that John sees in Revelation 4. To give you some background on what's going on here is we have navigated through the church age in Revelation 2 and 3, and you've got to remember Revelation is laid out chronologically. It's the first time in any prophetic scenario that something has been laid out chronologically. And so John is taking us through the church age, and then we have what's called the parentheses. And there are several parentheses in the book of Revelation, and what we discovered in the parentheses is where the main focus is and where a lot of the application is. Because when we get into the judgments, that'll move fairly quickly. But it's in the parentheses in Revelation that's where you need to stop and camp out on because there's a message there in the parentheses. Now, what's the message we're learning? The message we're learning is John is seeing what's going on in heaven prior to the tribulation, and he is given this scene of God and the holy court and the temple So that John and also future tribulation believers will be comforted in the midst of the trials and hardships of the tribulation. Now, you must understand in the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation is a survival manual for the tribulation saints. We will not be here. This book is written so they can know what comes next, what they should expect and how to prepare for it. So God has basically given a survival manual to them. That being the case, he gives these parentheses to this future generation of believers so they don't have a distorted view of reality. They don't have a distorted view of God based on all that's happening in their world. And so what you and I are taking from this, just like we would look at the Old Testament saints and we learn from them and learn from their experiences... Believe it or not, what we're learning is from a future experience of believers in the book of Revelation. And so we take the application for ourselves as well. And here's the application. They're going to go through the most traumatic time in human history. You can't get any worse than this. No one here in this room can ever say they're going to go through something as traumatic as what the tribulation saints are going to come through. They're going to see the horror of Babylon. They're going to see the, the Antichrist. They're going to see the one world government. They'll see it all, the, all the judgments that are happening. And it is absolutely unprecedented. There's nothing in human history that's ever come close to that. So what God is doing for them is giving them a picture through the apostle John of who he is so that they don't lose perspective on life that they can actually endure the trauma and the distress and the anxiety and understand what God is trying to do. Okay, so the takeaway for us is this. No matter what affliction, no matter what trauma you have suffered or are suffering or will suffer, chapters 4 and 5 is actually your way to gain perspective on what's going on with you on hardships, and why did I have to go through this? Why am I currently going through this? What good is coming out of this? Because what the devil wants to do is he wants to come to you and say, look, God's holding out on you, man. He doesn't love you as much as he should, because if he, if he did love you, and if he was all-powerful, he would stop what's happening in your life, and, and he would love you, and he wouldn't let this happen to you, and before you know it, you have a wedge between you and God. And like we saw in the first sermon last week about this, God is busy helping us. In the first sermon, we learned that God is unveiling righteousness, unrighteousness. He's revealing this to the world. That's part of the plan of why things are happening, and that he's going to make everything right for us in the future. He's going to make the bubble go back to center, so to speak, for our lives. He will redeem what the locusts have eaten. He's got a plan. He's doing all of this. But what we're going to see now is more information for us and for the tribulation saints that will actually help us in getting a grip on reality. Let me read you a story, and let me show you how fast you can lose reality in trauma, because everybody in here has went through some type of trauma in their life, okay? Loss of a job, loss of a loved one. We lose things in this world. 
loss of finances, loss of anything like that. We suffer loss. That's a lot of what trauma. But here's what, what happens with trauma. You get to the point like you start thinking, well, things will never be the same again. All is lost and there's no hope. And, and, and you start becoming depressed and anxiety-ridden and fearful of what's happening. And you feel unsafe because what you thought was safe, what you thought was sacred, has been taken from you. And what you find out in this life, in this world, there's nothing sacred. People get molested. People get raped. People get murdered. There's nothing sacred. Even though God says life is sacred, sex is sacred, all those things are sacred. In this world, controlled by the God of this world, all those things are on the table for him to go after. And you start feeling unsafe. You don't have a place of refuge Things are happening to you, and it challenges your view of God. Why? Why is he allowing this? Let me read you a story real quick. This is an illustration of trauma and what it does to the individual. This is by a a, a lady who lost a baby to SIDS. She's recounting this in her counseling session. This is in an illustration I saw. Tom, her husband, picked our six-month-old son, Jeremy, up out of his crib. It was 5 a.m. Jeremy, the baby, wasn't breathing. He was blue. I called 911 in tears. I kept telling Jeremy to wake up. The ambulance got there. They couldn't do anything. I rode to the hospital in the back of the ambulance. I sat at the hospital holding him. They kept telling me he wasn't going to wake up. I did everything the doctors told me to do. I was mad at them. Jeremy was healthy and gaining weight. They finally took him from me. They did an autopsy. They said SIDS. I said, SIDS? Then I thought, stupid Tom did coke, cocaine. He killed my baby. I couldn't go back to that apartment. That's the apartment she lived at. We moved to another apartment. I kept hearing Jeremy. I was, it was a year and a half. Tom, my husband, kept saying, stop crying. I think he hated Jeremy. He loved James, our other child, but he did not love Jeremy. I dream about Jeremy. At the funeral, I didn't want to leave him there either. They put makeup on him. It didn't look like him. I know hate's a strong word, but I hate Tom's family. Jeremy was so beautiful, so healthy. I miss him so much. I feel guilty because I can't go to his grave. I talk to him all the time, though. Things between Tom are bad. I hate drugs. All I want to do is sleep, and I don't want to wake up anymore so I can go be with Jeremy. Where is God in all this? That's written by a lady who has a distorted view of God. No doubt trauma has happened to her. She's trying to grasp at things, and she doesn't know what to do. I don't know if that lady was a Christian or not, but it's not uncommon for Christians to become like that with trauma. Where is God? What is he doing? What is he up to? That's what Revelation 4 and 5 is about. And that's why I'm going to spend an inordinate amount of time on it because that's what all of us need. Because we have lost things because of physical abuse, sexual abuse, friendships, dreams are lost, health, uh, all these other things we have lost. Let me show you something real quick. I got this from Norm Wright. Our number one grief counselor in the nation is right here in Bakersfield, believe it or not. And... uh, I got this from Norm. You can't probably see it, but I'll explain it to you. Most people are living like this. It's kind of an iceberg. And what you can see is on the top is the white part, and then below the water is all the stuff going on in their heart. On the top, you have words like, I'm fine, I'm all right. Why talk about this? I want to forget it. Why can't you leave me alone? And you see the surface, but underneath the surface is going on, why, why, why? Anger, will I ever feel normal again? I feel so alone. No one understands me. Why can't I stop crying and feeling this way? Isn't anything predictable? Rage, guilt, fear, anger. I can't sleep. I hurt. Am I different? Will I have flashbacks? They have a damaged self-image, and no one understands them. And that's going on beneath the surface with a lot, a lot of people. And what happens is the trauma that they have been given through life, not by God, but from life, from the fall, from Satan, from evil people, has damaged them. And it's damaged them so much that they have a misperception of reality. They have a misperception of God. They have a misperception of others. 
and they're functioning in this reality that has been damaged, and they can't see past it. What 4 and 5 of Revelation is, is a picture of reality and how to get back into it so that the trauma that you and I have suffered doesn't cripple us. Oh, we're going to be hurt by it. God doesn't want it to hamper His call on our lives. We have to think correctly about Him and ourselves and reality. And so what you're going to see is a reality check about what God is up to in our trauma. We looked at last week that God's in control. He will reveal unrighteousness and that He will right every wrong. We got that last week. If you haven't heard that, listen to last week's sermon. Now we get into this week's and more images of what John's going to see. John was taken in a vision to heaven, and he sees the heavenly court. And this is prior to the tribulation. So this is what we're going to take from it. What does God do for us in our trauma? What is he up to? Well, really the fourth one, but it will be the first point we have today, this continuation of the last week's sermon, is this. He sees the God of grace, faithfulness, and promise in this next picture that he sees or vision that he sees. Look with me in verse 3c. It says this, And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Most commentaries, most people preaching through the book of Revelation just simply pass on through this one. When they see all these images of God and the throne and all these colors, they just simply move on. This is extremely Hebraic, very Hebrew, very, very, very Jewish. And every time you see these little nuances, you must explore them because they have a whole message behind the symbol. This is how the Jews think. We think in terms of A, B, C, D, and E, and F, G, and lists like that. The Jews don't think like that. They think in word pictures, colors, numbers, symbols, patterns. So it's very Hebraic. So he sees the heavenly scene. I think we have an artist's rendition of this heavenly scene. And basically, he's saying in the midst of the throne where he sees God the Father, there's an emerald rainbow encircling him. An emerald rainbow encircling him. And I think we have another picture, kind of a side view. And again, this is an artist's rendition, but I want you to conceptualize what he's seeing. He's seeing actually the throne of God in heaven in the temple. Not necessarily the new Jerusalem, but in the temple. And this is the throne of judgment. But in that throne of judgment, it's an emerald, you can barely see it on the thing, but it's an emerald rainbow. Well, let's explore that. What's the Hebraic about this? Well, the first thing is you have to go to the law of first reference. And understanding the Bible, the law of first reference in your hermeneutics, in your biblical interpretation, is to understand the meaning of what's being said as a symbol in the book of Revelation, you have to go back into the Old Testament and say, what is the first reference to it? Okay? So the first reference, we see the color green. I'll get to the rainbow in just a second. The color green. The color green in the Bible represents eternal life. Okay? It represents fruitfulness. And the message it's starting to say is that this eternal God that we worship is fruitful in producing eternal life. He gives us eternal life, and that's what proceeds out of the throne from him. Remember, in other pictures of the throne, you'll have water coming out of the throne. Water is another picture or symbol of eternal life in water. Jesus talked about that at at the woman at the well, about the wellspring of water welling up and in her. And again, it points to the eternal nature of God that produces life. Life is only found in God and nowhere else. Life is not found in our possessions. Life is not found in having a good time. Life is not found in having an experience. Life is only found in Jesus and Him only. Only Him. I am the way, the truth, and the life eternal. The green is symbolized in that rainbow. Okay. Now, so we understand the green color. Well, what's the law of the first reference about rainbows? Well, it's real simple, and you all know the story. It's the symbol, 
that he gave as a token to Noah, the rainbow. Okay, this rainbow, though, is emerald in color, representing eternal life. But nonetheless, it's a rainbow which does point back to Noah's flood. And all the messages of Noah's flood is right here in this symbol. Okay, what do you mean? Well, let's first of all unpack what the rainbow is not. As you know, the LGBT community has hijacked the rainbow. And here's a picture of it right now. But I want you to notice something very interesting before we go into the rainbow. Count how many colors are on the LGBT rainbow. There's six. I don't know if it was an accident or if it just worked out that way, but a true rainbow from God has seven colors. They picked one short. How many colors do they have? Six. The number of man incomplete is six. The number for perfection, the number of God is seven. I don't know if they just automatically did six, but they're missing the color indigo. Isn't that funny? They pick a symbol trying to hijack it from the Bible, and they pick it one short, which is exactly they come up short. Isn't that amazing? Well, let me show you what a real rainbow looks like in life, as you know. And you've seen these all over the place, and it only happened after the flood. And it was a token or a pledge from God that he would never flood the world again. But it was also a symbol of covenant and a promise. And I think we have another picture of a rainbow. And again, in that rainbow, there are seven colors. Seven. Okay? So he sees this rainbow around the throne. Okay. Let's unpack what the rainbow means. Because it's highly symbolic. Number one, you can write this off to the side... Anytime you see a rainbow from our vantage point on earth, it is a bridge. It is in the form of a bridge into heaven. From earth to heaven, it forms a bridge, right? And one of the things you notice is that Jesus is the bridge or the mediator between heaven and earth, between God and man. Jesus is the bridge between. He is Jacob's ladder, right? So in a lot of ways, when you see the rainbow, it's a picture of Jacob's ladder, per se, or it's a picture of Jesus himself. It is a typology of Jesus. It's the bridge between heaven and earth, and Jesus fits that. So that's the first thing is the bridge. But also we see that it's a, it's a promise. It's a covenant that God made with Noah and the family and all of humanity afterwards, and it was an act of grace. But let's go back before the rainbow happened so you can understand how grace is seen in the rainbow. The rainbow came after the flood. But what happened before the flood? Humanity had went crazy. You had Nephilim interbreeding and fallen angels interbreeding with humans, creating Nephilim, and continually on man's mind was wickedness. And so God had to destroy mankind, not only because of the genetic problems, but also because of the evil, the rampant evil from the demonics and human beings mixing together. Nonetheless, Noah builds this ark for 120 years, never rained before. He's preaching salvation. And he's preaching salvation for eternal life and then preaching salvation for physical life as well. And so he's doing both, that God will save you eternally and also physically from this flood if you will just get on my Ark. Now, the thing about the ark, when you study the ark, the ark was built for way more than what Noah had put on the ark. Way more. It's huge. It's almost like it anticipated a lot more people being on there other than just eight. Thousands upon thousands could have been on there as human beings, but only eight were on there. Interesting enough, when you read the account of Noah, God puts him in the ark and puts him on there for, and watch this very closely. He puts him on there for seven days with the door open. And Noah, you can imagine him yelling out the door outside the windows, get on board, get on board. And for seven days, there was an act of grace that they, anyone could have come on. I know the movies portray that Mo, Noah's shutting the door and people are fighting and clamoring to get on. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says he left that door open for seven days and no one walked through that door. No one. That's how bad it was. And quite frankly, that's how bad it's getting right now. Wait a second. You're bridging something. Yeah, 
John is bridging something. Yes. Seven days of grace to get right before the door is shut. In the tribulation, there will be seven years of humanity before the door is shut. And it won't be a flood. It will be by fire. You see the connection with the rainbow and even the act of grace. But then God says... He gave them that grace. No one got on except eight. And then he gives them that grace again. And he says, I will not flood the world ever again. There will never be a worldwide flood in all of this. And I promise it. But he did not say he would not judge again. He would judge and he will with the tribulation. But let me show you one more thing. Let me show you another picture. This is what a rainbow looks from above it. We see a rainbow with an arc and it looks like a bow. But it's actually a circle. So if you go above a rainbow, it's actually a circle. And that's what's encircling around the throne is a round rainbow. And so you can see these skydivers, they jump through rainbows. And you see how the circle is? That's how the throne is. So don't don't misunderstand. When God put a token in the sky, it was not a token of a half of a circle. It was a full circle that was a token given that I will not do this anymore. The circle is extremely important, and the symbolic nature of the circle is is important. We put circles on our fingers to say we've made a pledge to be married. When God did the Abrahamic covenant, he circumcised the boys, which is a circle. What's the meaning behind a circle? Because this circle envelops the throne. A circle represents eternality. That God is the eternal one. That's the reference. Interesting enough, you guys who are math experts, how do you measure a circle? You have to do it through pi, right? The circumference of a circle is measured by pi, 3.14. And can you get to the end of pi? No, you cannot. It's a decimal point that keeps getting longer and longer, and you never can exhaust it in a math equation. It just keeps getting longer and longer in its, its points afterwards. Now, you can get close, and you can get more definitive to it, but you never can exhaust pi. Did you see that? Even math, in the measuring of a circle, which represents eternity, you can never exhaust it. That's how God is. You can never exhaust him. You can learn more about him, but you'll never exhaust him. And so he's the perfect one. He doesn't change. And therefore, this leads into... Because he's the eternal one, he can keep his promises. That's why he says he's unchanging, that any promise he makes to us will be kept. So the rainbow or the circle represents a promise because of the eternal one making a promise, so it's good. Let me give you some unconditional promises that God has made in understanding the book of Revelation. There are right now currently... Five unconditional promises that God has made to humanity and the Jews that he's going to make good on because he's the eternal one. Number one is the Abrahamic covenant. You know this very well. It's made to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're called the Jews. That covenant is still in effect. If you mess with the Jews, God says, I will mess with you. That's Genesis 12, 3. Bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you, and on and on and on. Then after that, you have another covenant called the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant is David's throne will have an eternal person who sits on that throne one day. We know that it will be Jesus when he comes back. It's a political throne on earth. It's an earthly throne. And no one's on that currently, but the idea is Messiah is destined to rule this world. It's still in effect. Then the land covenant, which is in effect still. It's a promise that God gave Israel that this land is yours and no one else. It's not the Palestinians. It's not the Arabs. It's the Jews. End of story. And when Jesus comes back, he will extend the borders all the way from the river Euphrates all the way to the Wadi in Egypt. It will be a vast expanse of Israel's land. That's why it's so important right now when people mess with Israel's land today, they're calling on God to judge them when they do that. You don't divide the land. You don't mess with that. That's Israel's. And then here's the one for you and I, the new covenant. This new covenant's made for Israel, but we become partakers in it as Gentiles into the olive tree. We're the olive, wild olive branch that's engrafted in, as Paul said. Now, here's the promise. Here's the application, and I'm going to stop here for a little bit and camp out. 
One of the promises in the new covenant that Paul mentions to us in affliction, in trauma, in all of that we're going through, and you know it very well, but most people don't unpack it, is Romans 8.28. Let me read it for you, and then I want to unpack it, because this is a promise that you and I can go for and claim it if you're doing it. This is important. All things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Let's unpack that. All things, all things, all things that are going on, all creation, all the things that are happening in your life are in this world are working together for a common goal. Do you know what the goal is? The goal is to get to the messianic kingdom. The goal is to have this new dawn with the Messiah ruling in Jerusalem and where the curse is reversed, where you and I are glorified and resurrected, and we have this paradise that awaits us. All things are working for that end right now. We're part of that. Because God is going to redeem us, give us a glorified body. We're going to be with him in that kingdom age. So everything in our, your life and my life is geared for the kingdom. Not for you just to be happy. That's not about you and I being happy. I just want to be happy. No, no, no. What God is doing for you and all the stuff that's going on in your life is to prepare you for the kingdom. That's what it's all about. To get you ready for that age. It's not about having a better life here. You can just forget that dream. That's over. And if you're grabbing onto that, you are going to become worldly. It's not about that. It's getting us ready for the next life. Okay, wait. For the good, that kingdom goal, the goal, the good for us is to get us kingdom prepared. That's why becoming like Christ becomes kingdom prepared. But here's the caveat, and there's two caveats to this. Of those who love God... First caveat. Second caveat is, and are called according to his purpose. Those are not salvific terms. That's not a blanket promise to any believer. It's a promise that all things are working and that he's talking to all believers, but there's a caveat here. He's only saying this will only work out for you if you do two things. You first got to love God. And that's already explained how believers love God. First John talks about this. Jesus talks about this. Not all believers love God. What? Yeah, that's true. Not all believers love God. They claim to love God, but they don't. They're saved, but they don't. How did Jesus say to love him? If you obey, if you love me, you will obey me. There are many believers who prove that they don't love Jesus as they say they do because they simply won't obey. Hence, if you won't even do that, all things will not work together for your good. I know a lot of bitter brothers and a lot of twisted sisters. Guaranteed. Because they are not obeying, and so when bad stuff happens to them... It doesn't work for their good because they protest it. They withdraw from God. They get angry with God. They won't cooperate with God. He's trying to teach them a lesson. They run. They give up. They flee. They move. And they prove that just like Peter said when Jesus asked them, do you love me, Peter? Agape? And Peter responded, I Philadelphia you, but I don't agape you. You remember that scene? He got Peter to admit, you really don't love me like you say you do. Because if you did, you wouldn't have denied me, Peter. See, a lot of Christians don't even have that. But the second thing is this, who are called according to his purpose. What is his purpose in us? Make us more like Christ. And you've heard that. But make us more like Christ for what? For the kingdom age. There's a purpose behind what he's trying to do in us and all the junk that we have to go through through this life. The call means that the believer, it's not talking about salvation. It's talking about the call on your life as a believer with the gifts and talents he has given you and I to fulfill his purpose for our lives. Whatever he has called you to do, you must be on that path. 
So there's two caveats. You must be obedient, but then you must be on the right path of what he's called you to do. And that's going to be according to the gifts he's given you. So I can tell you this. If you're not functioning on the path you're supposed to be on, all things will not work together for good because you're not even on the right path to be working. You're doing your own thing on your own agenda, building your own kingdom. All things will not work for you. So when tragedy or trauma comes to you, it's just going to mess you up even further. So the caveat that Paul is given is, hey, guys, this promise is only good for those who are obedient and those on the path that God has called them to do. And brother, sister, if you're not on that path, it's going to be a nightmare. And God's not doing it. He's trying to help. But this world will mess with you so bad, it will shut you down. Well, you can't hardly function. You just will give up. So God's saying, cooperate with me, Brandon. Cooperate me, obey me, and then get on the path I've called you to do, and then all these things will start working out. Not that your life will be easy. It'll be easier. It won't be so complicated. We have to understand that. That's a promise made to you and I, but there's a caveat to it. Now, let's return to the Noahic covenant. This is important because it's all about Noah and the covenant when you see a rainbow. What was involved in this covenant? This covenant, by the way, the Noahic covenant is still in effect. It is a covenant made to all humanity. And you must understand the Noahic covenant is one of the basis for the judgment of the tribulation. That's why he sees the rainbow. What do you mean? I've never heard that. The Noahic covenant is still in effect, guys. It never went away. Now, the Mosaic covenant is gone. That's rendered inoperative by the cross. But all these other covenants I'm naming are still in effect. They're still going. Well, I've not heard about that Noahic covenant. Let me brief you on this so you understand where we're going with. Because this is part of the tribulation. Why the tribulation judgments are happening. Part of the provisions in the Noahic covenant that were given to Noah are several things. And let me enumerate them real quickly for you. Repopulate the earth, but it never says subdue it anymore. Because because of the fall, man cannot subdue the earth anymore. So that phrase that was given to Adam and Eve is no longer repeated anymore. Don't subdue it. We will not be able to harness its power. It's, it's beyond us now. So he's only called to repop, we're only called to repopulate. Huh, interesting enough, Europe's not even doing this anymore. They've stopped having kids. They'd rather just party and have a good time and do whatever they want. They don't even have kids anymore. So part of the way of covenant and the judgment of all humanity is if you don't have kids, and I'm not talking about people that can't have kids or, or whatever. I'm not talking about that. It's in people choosing not to have kids because they're selfish. Hey, you're going to be judged for that because you were called to repopulate. Now, interesting enough, also about subduing the earth, man was usurped by Satan. He became the God of this world when he usurped Adam and Eve. And this is why Satan tried to give the kingdoms to the Messiah. You remember that in the temptation? They were his to give because he controls the world system. But Messiah said no. Messiah was going to wait until the proper time when God the Father would give him the kingdoms in the millennial reign. But another man will come up in this world. He perhaps might be alive today. I don't know. And Satan will offer the kingdoms to him too. And this guy will take him. This guy is the Antichrist. So Satan is now controlling the world system because he usurped Adam and Eve. Okay, another provision is the fear of humans would be put into animals. Before then, the animals came right up to us. No problem. But that's been put in. When Messiah gets here, he reverses this. Man's diet changed at that point in time. He told Noah they could eat any living creature you wanted to. So that's why... Paul will tell Timothy, don't let any man tell you what to eat and what you cannot eat. You don't have to stay kosher. That was only for Israel. So when people want to do dietary laws with you, they're out of their minds. That's legalism. You can eat anything you want. Not everything is profitable, obviously, but the Noahic covenant allows you to eat any animal. Another provision, man is for still forbidden to eat or drink blood. This is why in the book of Acts, they said, what should we do with these Gentiles? They said, tell them not to eat blood anymore, drink blood, or eat uh, animals that have been strangled that still have blood in them. It's still forbidden to eat and drink blood. And yet I see cultures, how blood pudding, uh, this, that, they're drinking blood, and it's like, what are you talking about? You're going to be judged for that. Capital punishment was installed there. 
There was no capital punishment before Noah's flood. Capital punishment has been put in for murder. And yet, we see people murdering people all the time. 55 million babies have been murdered in the womb. Someone's going to pay for that one. Someone's going to account for that. And then, the other provisions of humanity would never be destroyed by a worldwide flood. And then the token of this would be a rainbow. So this everlasting covenant, which is called, it's called an everlasting covenant, is in effect, and it's this violation of the covenant that will be used in judgment of the tribulation. That's one of the main reasons that the tribulations come. Now think about this. How many thousands of years has it been since Noah was given this promise? You're talking thousands of years, right? Four, five thousand years old promise, still in effect today, and God's saying, I'm eventually going to cut it off and, and, and co- make it come to a head, and I'm going to judge for what I told Noah and the, and the rest of humanity to do. And they didn't do it. And the judgments are severe. They're horrible. Okay. You get that. You understand that. What's the application to take away for us before we move on? Well, this image of the rainbow around God, the eternal God who makes promises, will deliver on his promise. He will bless those who do what he says to do. He will curse those who don't. What it's giving John a picture of is the true image of God, that this God that's going to judge the world is also a God of grace, a God of mercy, a God of, of giving people time to repent. For goodness sakes, thousands and thousands of years, there's plenty of time for humanity to get their act straightened out. And yet, what do they do? Worse and worse and worse. And God is proving to all his creatures, I have a right to judge humanity. I've given them plenty of time. Even in Noah's day, I left the door open for seven days. They still didn't come. Okay. What's happening to a lot of people is because of the trauma they sustain in this life, they get a distorted view of God. They start seeing things that it's a God that they make up. We all can get like this because we've dealt with imperfect people. We get our images from imperfect people, and then we put that on God. So God starts becoming a product of our mental distortions. The God who didn't come to our rescue or the God who let me go through some painful emotional trauma or whatever, and we start avoiding God. We start, hmm, I don't want to be around him. You don't see God as a source of power anymore. You don't see God as a source of love. Well, where was he when this happened to me? Why didn't he stop someone from dying? He could have stopped it. I know he has the power. He must be an unloving God. You see the distortion? Starts happening. And I can tell you this, here, here are the most common mental distortions of God. The first one is the angry God. Look, when you see this image of God here in the book of Revelation, he's not angry per se. Yes, he is angry at sin, and he's going to put out wrath because of his anger, but he has given humanity grace and mercy to get themselves fixed, to follow him, to obey him, to get saved. And so, If you see God as an angry God, you don't see him as safe. This is a picture of safety with the rainbow and the promise-making God. He gave safety to Noah. And so you start seeing God as a condemner, God as a shamer, that he's just constantly irritated. No, what happened was that's the person you grew up with. The person you grew up with in your home who was constantly angry and irritated, that's your image of God, and you've put that image of that parent or grandparent or whatever on God. And so God's just constantly irritated. He's the angry God. Well, I can guarantee you this. If you think God's angry, you won't go to him. The other image that most people conjure up about God is the unpleasable God, the performance-based God. And a lot of people act like this. They've got to win brownie points. They've got to win brownie points with him by doing good works and doing this and that for him. And even Christians will do this. Even they know they're saved by grace through faith, they will still try to earn brownie points with God. They don't think they're accepted by him because they grew up in a critical home, a home that they couldn't match up to. The bar was set so high, no one could reach it. And so they put that on God and say, he's the unpleasable God. If you think God is unpleasable and and you have to perform for him, you're not going to come to him in your time of need. The other one is the disconnected God. 
A lot of people have this image of God, the disconnected God. What do you mean? Well, they just think, well, God's powerful enough. Why didn't he do anything for me when I was going through this? How come he just let it go? They don't understand the concept of free will, and that's not even entering their thoughts and the fall. That's not even entering their thoughts. They're just blaming God for it. And they say, well, if he had the power, then he must not be the loving God that you guys talk about. He must be the disconnected God. The God that's not interested in my life. He's abandoned me. He's not trustworthy. That's the kind of image they start making up of God. And then they have the indulgent God, the indulgent God. The indulgent God is the one that's irresponsible. They see how they grew up or their environment they're in. And they're like, man, this is chaotic. This is crazy. Why, what, what happened here? He just let me fend for myself. And these people that were supposed to take care of me didn't take care of me. And he's the indulgent God. He's the Santa Claus up there in the celestial sky, who lets people get away with murder. He doesn't call into account to anybody. And then start putting that on themselves. Well, I guess I can do anything too. Nothing happened. I did this, and the lightning bolt didn't come out of the sky and strike me down. So I guess he's the indulgent God. He just lets people be how they want to be, the indulgent God. And then the last one is the powerless God. He could have helped that person not to die. He could have reversed the cancer. Why didn't he, Brandon? Well, they'll say, I believe he's loving, but I guess he doesn't have the power to change it. If that is one of the views of God that you have, you have a distorted picture of God. That is not how he is. That's not what the scriptures are trying to say. This is the loving God who will punish sin one day, who gives grace and mercy and comfort to those who want it. But if that's a distortion of you, or a view of yours to God, you must get back into the truth. Because the longer you're in a distorted reality about God, the further away you will get. I talked about this in my Sunday school class this morning. I said, you want to know if someone's mad at God or have a distorted view of God? I said, watch what they start doing. And they, they nailed it. They saw it too. And they, and they said, yeah, they start removing themselves from fellowship. Yeah, they won't stop coming to church. They don't want to be around other believers. And then eventually they'll stop them coming entirely because they know they're up to something. But the problem is they have a distorted view of God, distorted view of Christianity, and a distorted view of reality. And they get into their own weirdness because they're in an alternative reality. And the devil's got them. That's all he needs to do distort their image of God, and he's got them. The number one reason people don't come to faith in Christ because they have a distorted view of God. That's why. And they've learned this from whatever cult they grew up in, whatever home they grew up in, and they think that's God. God's like my dad. God's like my mom. Or God's like the abuser that I had in my family or whatever. And that's like you took the bait. And so what John is getting is getting back on track. What is the right view of God? What does he look like? Who's the real God? And what, who is the God we must seek? Let's go to point number two. The real picture of God that we see here is the God who prepares our destiny. He's working on our benefit, I told you, to make you into the image of Christ and to prepare you for that kingdom age. He's working for our benefit. We jump to verse 4, and it says this. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. Well, let's unpack that and try to figure out who these people are. There's 24 elders. Again, another artist's rendition so you can kind of get a picture. Around the throne are the 24 elders. I'll get into the four living creatures next week. But these 24 elders we must identify to understand how they apply to us. Again, it's the God who prepares our destiny. Let's unpack the 24 elders real quick. A couple points I want you to note. The first thing you notice about the 24 elders, they're seated on thrones, right? Around the throne of God. Yes. Let me show you some scriptures that talk about this. There's two of them I want to show you real quick. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessel, as I also have received from my father. So there's a passage about ruling. Ruling. Okay, gotcha. Now let me show you the, the next one, Revelation chapter 3. To him who overcomes, 
I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also came and sat down with my, with my father on his throne. Ah, I got a clue. I got a clue. These 24 elders are sitting on Jesus' throne. As Jesus is sitting on the Father's throne, these elders are sitting on his throne. You know what his throne is? His throne is the Davidic throne of the Messianic kingdom. Huh. There's a clue there. What is it said about you and I? These are all passages in the church age, by the way, I gave you. You will rule and reign with me. There's a first clue. Second clue, we see this, is there are 24 in number. 24 in number represents something. You go back to 1 Chronicles 24, and what you discover is that you had so many priests helping at the temple, David actually made 24 courses of priests who would serve at the temple. So basically, out of all the hundreds of priests, they couldn't all serve at the same time, right? There'd be too many at the temple. So what David did is he cut them up into 24 And then out of the 24, 24 individual priests would serve at a time. And those 24 would represent the entire priesthood, even though there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. Those 24 would represent the rest of the priesthood. And basically, if you were a priest in those days, you would serve probably about twice a year at the temple if you were a priest, and the rest of the time you ministered at your hometown. But so so once or twice every year, you'd go for a week at the temple and serve. And that's where the term 24 comes from. So these individuals who sit on Christ's throne of the, of the millennium are priests. Ah, what are we called? Priests, kings, a kingly priesthood, the priesthood of all believers, we say, in the church age, right? There's your other clue. They're also called elders. By the way, the term elders is a technical term, presbyteros in Greek. It's a technical term, which means it's technical for the officers of the church. The other term we use is pastor or bishop. Huh. So these are the bishops or pastors. Okay. The fourth clue. They're clothed in white robes. Let me show you a picture real quick. Again, another artist's rendition. But these elders have a crown, and they have white robes, and they actually worship the Lord right there at the throne. Again, I don't want to retread ground of our recover, but let me show you what the robes symbolize for believers. And it's Revelation 19, I believe. And to her, the church, it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is what? The righteous acts of the saints. The church age. This is the next time we see the church. So the white robes represent our righteous acts, not the righteousness of Christ. We already have that given to us, but righteous acts, as you can see in the text. Let me show you another passage. This is Revelation 3. You have a few names in Sardis, talking to the Sardis church, who have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes, that's the caveat, you have to overcome, shall be clothed in white garments. You have to overcome. There's a caveat. You just don't automatically get the white robes. You have to overcome certain things in Christianity in your, in your life. And there's another passage I want to show you. I counsel you to buy from me, this is the Laodicean church, gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments. They have golden crowns on, on their heads. And so the idea of the white garments is that you earn these because of the righteous acts you do as a believer. And so you're you're going to be found naked if you don't have them. So all this to say, if you put it all together, the 24 elders are the church in heaven. These are representations of the church. Now, but but let me put the caveat. Only selected members of the church have crowns and white robes. Only them. Not all believers will have crowns, and not all believers will be in white robes because they did nothing with their Christian life. They did absolutely nothing. They got in, but that's it. So they represent a church that has already been judged. I want you to catch that. So what happens to us when we're raptured? We're immediately judged at the bema seat of Christ in heaven. 
It's already, John's been called up into heaven, Revelation 1. He's already seen the church that has been judged. They've been rewarded with crowns, white robes. And so it means that the Bema seat judgment happens prior to the tribulation in chronological order, if you put that in that layout as John has given it. So they're already there. And let me talk about the crowns. This is important. There's five crowns. And if you want to write them off to the side, I think we'll have them on the board. If you want, I'll email them to you to give you a more in-depth thing on the crowns. This is important. There are five crowns talked about in Scripture. Each person in here can receive all five if you want. But it's on you. It's on you if you will receive these. The first crown that Christ will reward is what's called an incorruptible crown for mastery over the sin nature and self-control. You're called to master your sin nature. If you're sitting here today and you're saying, my sin nature is out of control and I cannot control it. I can't control myself. I have addiction issues. I have OCD. I have all this other stuff going on in me and I can't master my sin nature. Don't think you're going to get a crown for that. You get a crown for working on your junk. You get a crown for working on your baggage. Okay? I'm just going to put it out there. That's what it's about. Okay? If you think you're going to roll into heaven and get a crown because you kept all your baggage with you, you got another thing coming to you. you got a tongue lashing coming to you. Okay? So that's what this one is. The second crown is this. A crown of righteousness for living righteously in a world due to spirituality. Watching for the return of the Lord, which prevents worldliness. What do you mean by this? You live righteously in respect or in light of the return of Messiah. This is what we talked about a couple weeks ago about watching for Messiah's return. If you watch for Messiah's return, that doesn't mean looking up into the sky. It means that I obey, I'm faithful, I don't become worldly. That's how I prepare for him. That's how you know if someone's prepared for this rapture is if they're obeying and living wise. That's what Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse. So those who live wise and obedient, you're going to get that crown. The third one, crown of life, for enduring trials while proceeding in God's plan. Now, some of it, the trial could be extreme like martyrdom. It's a martyrdom crown, the Smyrna one. But James also talks about this crown too, just simply enduring trials. What do you mean? Well, as you know how life is, you keep having one thing after another hit you, right? Over and over again. And it doesn't get any easier, does it? It gets more complicated, more, more difficult, and harder to deal with, right? Yeah. That's how life is. And it's the struggle that you're supposed to fight through with God's grace and mercy. And if you do so all of your life, you're going to get a crown. Because you endured the trials without running without burying your junk, without not dealing with stuff, you actually dealt with it. You worked on it. You got through the trial. You didn't come out. You're going to have scars, there's no doubt about it, but you fought through it and you got through it with God's grace. That receives a crown. Four, crown of joy. This is for leading others to Christ and evangelizing and influencing others in righteousness. So everyone gets the evangelism thing, but a lot of people don't understand leading other people's influencing them in righteousness, which means this, is whether it's believers or unbelievers, that because of your life, that you live so differently, that when you walk into the workplace, they know not to go there with certain jokes. They know not to go there with certain topics because you live righteously, not pious, like you're above everyone in a puritanical way, but that you're a godly individual. And that influences other people. You actually become salt and light to people. You get a reward for that. But you have to live righteously, right? And the fifth one, the crown of glory. Now, Peter will use the picture of a pastor getting his crown of glory. But overall, in general, what it's talking about is that you complete the mission that God gives you for your life. And you say, I don't know what my mission is. Well, you better find it. It's, it's important you find it. You've got to know what you're here for. If you say, hey, man, I hit retirement, and I'm just going to go, go and do my own thing, you're sadly mistaken because he's already given you an assignment, and you know what that assignment is, and you need to get on that because if you don't, you'll lose a crown. But if you do and you complete the task, as Paul said, I have finished the race, right? 
Are you finishing your race? Are you finishing well? I can tell you this. A lot of people are not finishing their race well. It is crumbling right in front of them because they can't hold it together anymore because they're trying to do things on their own. I give you this because this Stephanus, this victor's crown, is available to all in this room if and only if you do what Messiah asks you to do. The application then goes this. You might say, my life feels upside down right now, Brandon. I don't know which way is up, which way is down, and I, I... I don't understand what this picture of destiny is supposed to do for me. It's supposed to show you what you look like in the victor's place. When you see the 24 elders up there, they're in a victory position. They have finished the race. They got all the the rewards. That's you winning the Super Bowl. That's you winning the World Series. Imagine how you would play the World Series if someone told you, hey, by the end of this, You win, and you get the MVP, by the way. And you set all kinds of records. How would you play life? How would you play the game? And so what God has given the picture to the church and any saint is a finished product, a picture of us, which is the end result of our salvation, the hope that we have in Christ. So a couple things we want to point out about this. And this is a hard one. Submit to the struggle. I know everybody in this room is struggling with something. I know they are. It could be wayward children. It could be broken relationships, an impending divorce. It could be death. It could be illness. Everyone is struggling. But instead of protesting it and getting mad at God, saying why, God has shown you a picture of himself in the rainbow and said, I'm going to make everything right again. Just trust me. I'm the eternal one. I'm the God of hope. I'm the God of promise. I will turn your life around. And by the way, I will use what you're going through to prepare you for the kingdom age when all this trouble is gone. But you've got to cooperate with me. You've got to work with me. Submit to what you're going through and quit protesting it and deal with it. That's hard, guys. That's a hard one to try on. But God is saying, I'm giving you the tools to do it. I have not left you abandoned. I will give you everything you need to get. And you can get from point A to point B. This is why James in James chapter 1 says this. Look what he says. How could he say something like this? My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. What? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be, be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Mature prepared to enter the kingdom, ready to be rewarded. That's what you have to like. Not that what you're supposed to like what you're going through. You're supposed to like the end results of what it will produce in you, is what James is saying. But sadly, sadly, a lot of Christians, that's not on the radar screen, guys. They don't want to do that. They're like, hey, dude, I don't want to grow. No, seriously, I don't want to grow. I don't, I don't want any of this. I don't want to learn a new truth. I don't want to become more like Christ. I just, want to, I just want to exist, Brandon. I just want you guys to leave me alone. Quit putting pressure on me. I just, I just want to be like, just, just stop it. Stop it. I don't want any counseling. I don't want anything. Just leave me alone. Leave me alone. You're going to destroy yourself like that. People are trying to help you. But unfortunately, a lot of people choose that decision. And they go for it. And they say, I'm not doing anything. I don't want to work on myself. I'll, you know, Brandon, I'll still serve. I'll still come to church. I'll go to the Bible study. But t- anything inside of me, I'm not working on that. Are you crazy? That's too hard. It's too painful. I'm not going back there. And so they choose other options. Like this man. Can you believe this? Let me show you a picture of this guy. That's a mugshot. This is a 71-year-old man, Lawrence John Ripple. 71 years old, had a problem in his marriage, didn't want to get his marriage fixed, didn't want to work on it. So you know what this guy decides to do to, quote, unquote, not deal with his marriage and run away from it and get rid of it and yada, yada, yada? He chose the most extreme, stupid thing you could possibly do. He went into a bank, held him at gunpoint, gave him a piece of paper and said, give me all your money. So the bank complied very quietly, 
and they gave him some money in a bag, and he decided just to sit there. So the bank obviously called the cops, right? And he's just sitting there. Cops come and arrest him. He wanted them to arrest him. And do you know why? Take a guess. He said, I would rather be in jail than be stuck with this woman anymore. The guy absolutely chose to go to jail and live the rest of his life in an armed bank robbery than deal with his marriage and fix it. Can you imagine that? Now, that's crazy. That's crazy. But that's what, unfortunately, a lot of people do. They decide to handle their issues, not in a biblical way, but in ways they think they can handle them to escape. What's the point? The perspective we see in Revelation 4 is to bring us back into reality and is to get us back there so we can start working on going through these hardships in our lives. I pray you'll do that today. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.